you agree with Dean Ornish. And <laughs> for those of you who aren't familiar with Dean Ornish, uh, he is very, very plant-based. And you say that you agree with him in that you believe that food that is good for our health is also good for the health of the environment. But you say that you disagree with him on the details of that. So what do you mean by that? Well, exactly. I, I think that sustainable sustainability, that's kind of become like healthy diet, right? Who, who would be against a healthy diet? Well, but what do you mean by that? That that's where we need to have conversations. And why do you think that's healthier than something else? So what I meant specifically by that particular comment is yes, we all agree that we'd like to imagine that our dietary choices have this profound impact on environmental health. Um, I believe that you, and I think the evidence supports that you cannot have sustainable food systems without livestock agriculture. If a type two diabetic could eliminate their medication use, they would reduce their carbon footprint 29% more than if they shifted from a high meat to a vegan diet. Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My goal with this project is pretty simple. In a world which has become increasingly divisive and polarized, I wanna bring you a balanced perspective of health. To deliver on that promise, I'll seek out experts with conflicting opinions to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible in order to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thanks for joining me. to the Live Damn Well podcast. Sorry for not getting this podcast out last week on Friday. If you're new to the podcast, we typically publish a podcast every single Friday at 1 p.m., though that might change soon, but I'll keep everyone posted through my Instagram at live.damn.well. Before we get into this podcast, a few notes here. First, if you haven't checked out my book, Return to Human, what are you doing? I'm just kidding, but check it out. The link will be in the description. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please buy me a coffee, support the podcast. The link is in the description to that. Finally, Thrive Market is the sponsor of this episode. A big thank you to Thrive Market if you haven't heard of them. They are basically an online Whole Foods at a fraction of the price that you'd pay in a physical store. Sorry, Whole Foods, but Thrive Market's got you beat. You can buy you know, all organic, non-GMO. It's basically a curated list of foods that are paleo, keto friendly, vegan friendly, you know, whatever kind of diet or, you know, nutritional um, framework that you're working under and that you follow, they have it for you in the highest quality food. So I highly recommend you check them out. They deliver it right to your door. So it's super convenient. And if you use the link in the description, you will actually get 40% off of your first order and you'll get a free gift. So check them out, link in the description. Now on with the interview with Dr. Peter Ballerstedt.
All right, so today I have with me Dr. Peter Ballerset joining me to talk about the environmental impacts of eating red meat. Dr. Ballerset has an extensive background in forage production, utilization, and forage-based livestock production and was the forage extension specialist at Oregon State University from 1986 until 1992. He also is a writer, speaker, and researcher at Grass-Based Health, which advocates for sustainable grass-based agriculture and nutrition. Dr. Bellerstedt, thank you very much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you for the invitation, Jorge. I'm um, looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me as well. I actually will be interviewing uh, Dr. Frank Mitloner on the podcast as well, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Actually, I think you interviewed him on your podcast. Um, and so I, I'm super interested in this conversation of uh, what is sustainable agriculture, because we are in the midst of this narrative, which is, you know, plaguing nutrition science, it's plaguing, you know, our politics, it's, it's really shaping um, our mindset about how we see the world. Um, and it mostly goes something like, you know, eat plants and save the planet kind of thing, right? And there's no really room for nuance there that I've seen uh, amongst, you know, the, the, the people who are leading the plant-based tribe. And then also sometimes with the people who are lead, leading like the carnivore-based tribe, although, to be fair, that is what I, that I will, I will share my biases. That is what I am more <laughs> leaning towards at this moment. Um, and so I'd like to start off with something, something I heard you say um, on a talk you gave, which is that you agree with Dean Ornish. And <laughs> for those of you who aren't familiar with Dean Ornish, uh, he is very, very plant-based. And you say that you agree with him in that you believe that food that is good for our health is also good for the health of the environment but you say that you disagree with him on the details of that. So what do you mean by that? Well, exactly. I, I think that sustainable sustainability, that's kind of become like healthy diet, right? Who, who would be against a healthy diet? Well, but what do you mean by that? That that's where we need to have conversations. And why do you think that's healthier than something else? So what I meant specifically by that particular comment is, yes, we all agree that we'd like to imagine that our dietary choices have this profound impact on environmental health. Um, I believe that you, and I think the evidence supports that you cannot have sustainable food systems without livestock agriculture. And specifically, you can't without ruminant livestock agriculture. So the, those are two things that we could tease apart. Um, I also want people to understand that the healthcare industry has an environmental impact, which we don't frequently consider in the conversation. So we focus only on the dietary choices. We assume that those dietary choices would lead to better health. That's an area of debate. And I'm going to say the, the vast majority of current health care is around metabolic chronic disease care or management or however you want to express that. And so if we could say that eating one way has been shown to be an effective way of lowering that burden, then that's an improvement in environmental footprint. And we need to put that on the scale opposite whatever the impact is of that food production system. 
Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's also something that when I was looking through your talks that is not really talked about very much, this, this impact of, um, of the modern healthcare system. How would you say that that relates in terms of, um, in relation to animal agriculture? Is it more heavily weighed in terms of its impact? Well, there's the livestock agriculture has done more work in benchmarking where they are and coming up with concrete plans and milestones to get to specific goals. We have another number of other industries that are making claims about where they're heading, but they haven't begun to do the benchmarking. They don't have the same degree of information. It's there are estimates that say that all of healthcare is responsible for about 10% of greenhouse gas emissions, anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. So 10%. Now, these analyses aren't like apples to apples. So we need to be honest about that. But 10%, when you look at energy use and you look at um, food that's, you know, consumed through healthcare or transport or the buildings or, you know, the disposable goods that go into healthcare, the pharmaceutical use. The direct emissions from agriculture are estimated to be somewhere less than 10%. That's all of agriculture. Livestock agriculture is somewhere less than 4% beef is somewhere less than 2%. So those are sort of where we can begin looking. And then there are others. Um, some people have done analyses that suggest that the average adult American with type 2 diabetes uses something like two metric tons of CO2 equivalent worth of pharmaceuticals. Uh, a year. Um, so you can spin those sorts of things out. Um, one estimate was that if a type 2 diabetic could eliminate their medication use, they would reduce their carbon footprint 29% more than if they shifted from a high meat to a vegan diet. Wow. So, and again, more work needs to be done in this space. The point is that, and, and that's only in quotes, looking at the environmental impacts. That's not looking because anytime we deal honestly in sustainable research, we need to also be concerned about societal impacts, economic impacts, as well as the environmental impacts. And so we, from others, can understand what the societal impacts of, for example, merely only type two diabetes, the the lost you know wages, the the indirect as well as direct costs, the reduced life quality, the related disease. You know, you can start to get to a very large burden that again, I argue, needs to be appropriately placed on the balance when we talk about environmental impacts of various food systems, because obviously the question just doesn't end with, 
okay, here's the food. Now we assume you'll be healthy if you eat this. And, and the other side of it is, unfortunately, the conventional wisdom of red meat causes, and then there's a long list of diseases, is still influencing these conversations, despite evidence, high quality evidence, to the contrary. Yeah, no, and in, in addition to, you know, weighing other factors, such as the societal impacts of getting people healthier, uh, one of those that I looked into is if people have chronic diseases, not only are they, you know, kind of, they are contributing to the environmental impact as a result of consuming pharmaceuticals or, you know, having to go to the hospital, but they also lose productivity, like in their jobs, in their lives, they're just you know, they are not the best version of themselves for the people around them. And so all of these things, you know, directly or indirectly affect, you know, our health and the environment. Absolutely. And something that those who've been trained and work in animal science understand is that herd health begins with proper nutrition, right? So that we have these tools that we can use either uh, vaccines or antibiotics or what have you, but they can't replace nutrition. And so we've just had a couple years where there is a conversation that wants to take place about how does chronic illness interact with infectious illness. And Another point that I've been learning more about lately is there's been this converse or this this narrative that says that these are, you know, Western diseases. These are diseases of prosperity. And the majority of people in the world that have metabolic syndrome writ large are in low and middle income countries. I mean, partly that's a function of population, right? There's, there's more people living in those countries. But the point is that we're seeing dietary transitions across the globe. We're seeing a trend toward greater urbanization across the globe. And when that happens, people are separated from whatever their ancestral diet was. They, they become more dependent on a food supply system that's providing highly processed foods of various kinds. And, and we see these issues uh, manifesting themselves across the globe. So it, it, it's a global issue of malnutrition, but we need to broadly define malnutrition. It's not only caloric insufficiency. It, we still have, and these are numbers from pre-pandemic, 800 million people in the world that are calorically undernourished. Now, there's lots of evidence to suggest that that number has been dramatically increased over the last two years. Um, at the same time, way back then, we had 2.2 billion people in the world that are overweight or obese. So you add those two up, we're at 3 billion at a minimum, uh, out of 7.9 or something. I mean, we're just shy of 40% of the global population being malnourished. And then the question is, well, how can we properly nourish? How can we 
produce not only caloric supply, but the high quality diet that human beings need to develop properly, to achieve their full potential, to flourish, and thereby support the sustainable development of countries across the face of the earth. I had uh, Dr. Bill Schindler on the podcast um, months ago. And one of the quotes that stood out to me relates very much to what you just said, which is that we are now living in a world where it's possible to be overfed, but undernourished. And that to me is, that is, that is really sad, but it's also, it's also very true. And I think that as the obesity epidemic continues to grow, um, we really do need to find ways to counteract that. Um, I also had Dr. Simpson and Robinheimer on to talk about the protein leverage hypothesis. And I want to talk to you about that towards the end of the podcast here. Um, but before we do that, I wanted to um, give you the opportunity to, to talk about and expand on something that I heard you say, which is, which actually surprised me. But then once I started to think about it, it made a lot of sense. You said that we're already plant-based as a whole. Um, could you explain a little bit about that? Sure. Um, the majority of calories in humanity's diet or humanity's food supply, because there's always this estimate of food supply and then estimate of what people eat as a result. So there's problems with the data that we have, but the majority of calories in humanity's food supply come from plant source foods. And that cuts across uh, income groups. Now it varies, but from you know the, the lowest income countries have more, but still even in the high income countries, the majority of calories are coming from plant source foods. So that means sugar, starches, and industrial oils, um, plant lipids. Um, the majority of protein, and again, that's crude protein, which I imagine we'll get into, um, in humanity's food supply is coming from plant source foods. And it's only when you get into the high income countries where you get a majority coming from animal source foods. So if we look globally, more of humanity's crude protein supply is provided by cereals than by all animal source foods combined. And wheat is the single largest source of crude protein. And, and cereals are not a good source of crude protein, uh, of the essential amino acids that we need. And so it's not arguable that people who are subsisting on cereal-based diets are going to be deficient uh, in essential amino acids. So that's where we already are. Um, I forget what it was, but something like 60% of the calories in the U.S. diet are coming from sugar, starch, and, and vegetable oil. I think it's something on that order um so or or sugar cereals and vegetable oil something along but you know cereals would be starch so 
again, it's like people say sustainable, they say healthy diet, they say plant-based, and it's like, wait a minute, what, what do you mean? We're already here, and you're saying we need to do more? And recently, I've been talking about maybe humanity's existential crisis is a lack of animal source food in our diets. And there's ways that that would manifest itself. And clearly it would depend on other things, but we can look globally and I think see evidence of this across income groups. So, so that's when I say we're already plant-based and maybe that's part of the problem that we're facing. Um, so promoting that we go even further that way, I would suggest is actually you know, going faster in the wrong direction. Yeah, and, and that makes a lot of sense um, because, yeah, I think what mainly the junk foods that I see, the processed foods that I see are mainly refined carbohydrates, right? Like the cereals, like the chips. Um, I mean, most of those are already, that, that's the main source of calories, especially I'm in college. So I see, you know, a lot of friends that are just, you know, eating away at those kind of foods. And for the most part, unless they are, you know, athletes, they are conscious of consuming enough protein. Um, but even then I have some friends that are vegan. And so that gets even harder to meet that protein goal. Um, and so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but one of the things that I kind of wanted to, um, to, to kind of um, make a distinction between is those processed carbohydrates and the fact that it's not necessarily the fact that they're plants and that they're carbohydrates, but it's the fact that they are refined they don't provide a lot of the nutrition. And, you know, if we're, if we were to even, you know, replace those carbohydrates, those uh, processed plant foods with whole food plant sources, do you think the impact would still be lessened the environmental impact? I mean, um, well, yeah, let's, let's take this apart in a number of, of steps. One is we just have far more land surface that, even though we call it agricultural land, it's not suitable for cultivation to produce annual crops, which is where we get, you know, wheat or barley or any of the cereals, corn, soybeans, the other legumes like lentils, peas, those are all annual crops. And there's some form and degree of cultivation required. And that is a small portion of our farmland. A, a lar vastly larger portion is what we call permanent pasture, rangeland, something on that order. And what we can do to produce food from those lands is to grow forage, run it through a ruminant animal and harvest meat, milk, and byproducts from those animals. And we in the US are richly blessed with that kind of class one, class two farmland, much more so than other countries in other parts of the world. So that needs to, people frequently confuse farmland with arable land, the tillable land. So um, that's, and, and you'll see things about, well, if we didn't use so much land for livestock, think of how many more crops we could produce. The second thing, there's no separation. Like, uh, um, um, you know, you cannot 
livestock agriculture and crop agriculture are integrated and it looks different in different countries. So um, in the, you know, something like, um, well, the vast majority of feed that goes into feeding the domestic livestock herd globally is not human utilizable. And so that would include all swine, all poultry, all ruminant animals. But if we just look at ruminants, so that that's like 86% or so of the feed that goes into the global herd is not human utilizable for any number of reasons. When you look at ruminants, it it's 96% is not human edible. So we have this conversion of a resource upcycling it into highest value food for human beings. So if so, there's that. Um, then there's just inherent differences. Um, plant source foods are of lower nutritional value than animal source foods for human nutrition. Plant source foods are also far more variable in their nutritional content, even if we're looking at soybeans, for example. Um, you know, harvest to harvest, variety to variety, location to location, things happen. And, and so that variability exists. The animal source foods, we've kind of had all these biological systems at play that kind of even out those variations and produce a more consistent, nutritionally speaking, food for us. Um, and when this may get us a little ahead of where we want to be, but just because a nutrient is present in a plant source food doesn't mean we can utilize it. So, you know, a gram of iron in plant source food, I'm just making this up, and a gram of iron in an animal source food don't have the same nutritional value. Right. Well, obviously, more of that from the animal source food is going to be utilizable by us. The same thing happens with amino acids. So just because it's present in the food doesn't mean that we can absorb it. And then, of course, we have to have it absorbed in the right ratio to permit us to utilize all those amino acids. So it, it, there's a lot of complications in this, but then we could look at something like for young children, like let's say an eight-year-old boy is physically limited in terms of gut size. And so an eight-year-old boy could not eat enough rice and lentils to satisfy his lysine requirement for normal development. Just physical limitation and so and that's before we look at all the other nutrients that are also likely to not be adequately provided just looking at rice and lentils and and you can look around the world and see that there's a lot of of human beings that are unfortunately trying to subsist on that kind of a limited diet so all of those things make me question, uh, and one more, when we process the plant source foods, 
we also decrease the digestibility of those nutrients. So for example, we start with wheat, which has a very low, relatively low lysine uh, supply relative to what we need. And we make whole wheat bread out of that. We drop its value from about 50 to in the 20s. And if we make a crispy breakfast cereal out of it, we drop it from the initial low 50s to essentially zero. Now we can, you know, add milk, for example, but what if we're adding like some sort of plant juice beverage instead of dairy? Well, we don't know. I mean, the, the, this is part of what hasn't been looked at over the last couple decades while we've been squandering resources, you know, often other questions. So these are just points that come to my mind that I don't think are adequately considered when people say plant-based or, you know, planetary diet or sustainable or healthy. Those sorts of things make me go, well, exactly what did you mean by that? <laughs> Yeah, and um, you said that was it eighty six percent that was not um, eighty six percent of feed that was given to cattle is not usable by humans. Well, that's all livestock. If you okay. if you looked at all of the you know swine, poultry, cattle, it would be in that eighty six percent range. Um, for total, just for ruminants, it's ninety six percent. Right. And why is that? Why is it that it's not usable by humans? Is the quality just too low to be given to humans or? Well, we don't eat grass. We don't browse trees. So okay. it tends to be material that's very high in fiber, low in um, fat. Um, and the protein quality tends to be poor and relatively low as well. And, and mm -hmm. protein in that case is defined as crude protein. So the, the nitrogen content multiplied by a factor to estimate crude protein. Got it. So think grass, think uh, leaves, um, brushy material, you know, uh, more uh, woody species. But then also, you know, we grow corn, we harvest the grain that leaves us with a lot of stalks. Uh, called stover is the, the name for the residue from the corn crop. Uh, similar thing could happen with other uh, crops where you, um, even in cotton, for example, after harvest, they turn animals in at times to, to, to graze aftermath. So you have that. Then, you know, when you process grain to make something else, uh, and and other plant source foods you provide you produce a lot of byproduct as well so i think the figure was something like for every hundred pounds processed you produce something like 37 pounds of byproduct and and then you have grains that for whatever reason aren't of sufficient quality for human use 
And so that can also then contribute, you know, if, if you uh, process potatoes, for example, you end up with skins and other material that can be fed to livestock. Um, one of my jokes is you can't get milk from almonds, but you can get it from almond hulls. Because in California, there's a lot of almond hulls that are fed to their dairy cattle. Um, as well as a lot of other byproduct feeds, which is one reason that they have a very large dairy industry. Um, so that that sort of material is either a feed resource or it's a waste product. And, and the fact that we can feed it to livestock means that the food is less expensive because you don't yeah. have to pay for disposal. Right. Um, you can get some value out of the raw commodity coming in besides the product that you then sell for human consumption. Okay. So that, that 86% for all cattle and the 96% of feed, which is not usable for ruminants only, that takes into account the things that humans just do not and cannot eat. Exactly. It, it, it very much, it takes into account feed, feed, feed for animals, food for people. So the vast majority of the feed is not human edible, uh, either because we don't eat it or, you know, the, the, the grade is wrong. Um, and then even that bit that is technically human food, and some people would argue whether we should be eating cereals or not, but it, we, we can. And, you know, if times get hard enough, it's better than starvation. Um, but a significant portion of that may not be suitable for human utilization for any number of reasons. And how much of that 86% or 96% is, uh, is grain? Oh, well, uh, in the case of ruminants of that, so we've got, we've got 96%. So for sheep, cattle, goats, buffalo, you know, dairy and beef, we've got 96% not human edible, we've got 4% being cereals, and one quarter of that, so 1% of the total was in that analysis estimated to be non-human edible because of grade issues. So 3% of the total feed was this cereal that could be fed to humans. But then we've got to understand that when we feed that resource to ruminant animals, we dramatically increase and improve the human protein supply. So it, it is part of this overall upcycling. Wow. Yeah, no, this is, this is crazy. And this is awesome. I, I love um, learning more about this because even as someone who I would say I lean more towards animal based, um, you know, for the environment and also for human health. And even so, I still had until you, uh, you know, explain this for me, I still had the misconception. And I didn't quite understand why the vegan argument of, um, you know, we should not give grains to cattle, we should be eating it instead. I didn't understand why that was flawed. Hmm. Well, uh, yeah, there's, there's a number of ways that you could look at that, um, not the least of which is there's a substantial number of people, as you know, who just get better when they don't eat grains. Yeah. Right. So, okay, 
what are they going to eat? Um, you know, calories from plant source foods are not equivalent to calories from animal source foods. Uh, they don't have the same metabolic effect. And, and we could go down the list of the differences. The, the fact remains that some amount of animal source food is essential in the human diet. Now, I'm not, animal source food is more than red meat. Right? Meat, eggs, dairy, seafood, pick what works for you for whatever reasons, but we must have it. And, and uh, a big part of what I'm trying to do is just make sure that people have the information that they think they have to make informed decisions, because I'm pretty sure that in many cases they don't. And that's because we keep hearing these things over and over again about land use, about greenhouse gas emissions, about water use, about health impacts, all of these things. Um, and then you can start looking at other things, like when people start talking about eliminating livestock agriculture. So, well, where do you think the fertilizers comes from to, to produce your crops? You know, majority of fertilizer worldwide is livestock manure. Um, and in case people aren't aware of it, we're at record high prices for fertilizer right now. Uh, as a result of several things, not the least of which is conflict in, in Europe. So we're, we're heading towards some very challenging times in our food supply. Um, but again, I, I'm just, you know, I don't want to tell anybody, you know, thou shalt eat this, that, or the other thing. I want people to feel comfortable about eating what they choose to eat because it makes them feel better. It makes them healthier. It's what they've chosen to do. So, I agree. And I think that one of the most troubling things that I've personally seen um, in terms of this kind of misinformation that you're talking about with, in, with regards to plant-based and the environment is that there are quite a lot of vegans who they go vegan and, you know, they try to do it as well as possible. And they, you know, they're suffering from eczema and some other autoimmune flare-ups and, you know, they just do not get better. And sometimes they may even get worse from what their previous, previous diet was, which often did include animal products. And the worst part is they, they, it's a very honorable thing to do, right? Because they think I am helping the environment and, you know, even though my health is not getting better, it's, I still think it's an honorable thing to do because of the environment. But what you just shared with me is that that's actually not the case. We can't include animal products in a sustainable way. And in fact, we might need them. Oh, I, I would suggest they're absolutely essential. Um, I, I would also point out that it, these dietary transitions are very tricky, right? We, we make a decision to go on a diet. We don't just change one thing. Right. We, we tend to change many, but we're focused on the one that got us to make the change. And so then at the end, you know, it's if if you took somebody on the standard American diet and made almost any change at all, you'd probably end up improving their condition. Exactly. So it's a kind of low bar at this point. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, in the long term, we see these very commonly reported problems show up. 
So there's still a lot of people that believe that there's a meaningful association between red meat and cancer, between processed meat and cancer, between red meat and any chronic disease. Um, they don't understand how we came to this point where that narrative is so widespread. Um, they also don't understand that the environmental arguments have been part of this from the very beginning of the dietary goals and dietary guidelines. I mean, the, 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 the dietary goals and then the guidelines all came out of that time when the environmental movement got its start. And we frequently, and we just saw this with the global burden of disease um, estimate that people have, how do they put it? They've been asymmetrically applying the precautionary principle. In other words, they say, what I'm recommending is right. There are no risks from it. And there are no benefits from what I'm arguing against. So in the last assessment, apparently, they gave no benefit to the role of red meat in providing essential nutrition. They only looked at the possible, their perception of risk. And that's how they could get to a 36 time greater number of deaths than their previous re report, despite apparently not doing any new research. They just changed their assumptions. There's a bit of contention about all that. They've been challenged and um, they said somebody involved has said, yeah, we were wrong. We shouldn't have done that. We'll change it the next time. But meanwhile, you have that report in place. Right. Just like we had Livestock's Long Shadow that said that, you know, beef provides, you know, more uh, greenhouse gas emissions than all transportation. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, that got changed, as you mentioned, Dr. Mitlerner. Um said, you know, how did you do that estimate? And to their credit, they admitted it was wrong. They retracted, they issued it, but it doesn't matter. It's out there. And there's a certain amount of that that's been going on for decades, where all that matters is that we get it into the public space, then we get it into advertising, you know, then, you know, nobody thought that they needed fat-free cookies until they were told you need to cut down on the fat in your diet so hey presto here are you know whatever um and there's a long list of that kind of stuff so we we need to um we need to get people aware that you need not experience type 2 diabetes as a progressive degenerative condition where how does it Dr. Unwin puts it? Would, would you like a lifestyle change or lifetime medication? And, and when, we, when he, his experience has been that when he takes the time to have that kind of conversation, very few people say, I want the lifetime medication. Um, and as a result, we see actual you know, improvements in metrics of health in these individuals. We see a reduction in pharmaceutical use. We see a reduction in healthcare spending because people get better. 
And, and so all of that needs to also be on the table when we're considering, you know, our food system. And I've been around enough of these conversations now to recognize that far too many of these conversations are based on the assumptions that come from conventional wisdom. Now, we know what a healthy diet is, so much so that you, we have people who look at maps and they have estimates of what the food supply and therefore the diet is in these different countries. And so they say, you know, when you have so much whole grain and so much fiber and a low level of that, that means it's a healthy diet. And so then they put these maps together of healthy diets globally. But at the same time, there are maps of stunting that is human beings under five years old that are low height to age which is somewhere between 20 and 25% of children globally, or maps of um, uh, mortality, where the percentage of 30-year-olds who will die by the time they're 70 of these chronic conditions. And it's this, there, there's like a direct correspondence between the highest rate of mortality, the highest rate of stunting, and where these people believe the diet's healthiest. This is the level of dissonance in that they cannot see that how, how could that be if the diet's the healthiest, how can it be that stunting is the highest and highest mortality rate and you could find others I mean, as I said, you know, we, we, we have high rates of diabetes and heart disease in countries where people are surprised. Right. That, how can that be? Yeah. It shouldn't be. Well, that's, again, an, a symptom of a mindset. First of all, nature is not abundant. Right. And, and so the, the human ingenuity is necessary. And, and in part, that included people within North America burning vast areas of grasslands to provide better grazing for the game. They, they routinely burnt the understory of the eastern forests to open things up for game as well as to enable them to more easily collect the nuts from the trees that they favored in the woodlands. Um, so th there, there has existed a form of land management, which some might, might or might not call agriculture for a very long time. But once we get to settlement and then the cultivation of land to produce these annual crops, okay, that's probably in the 10,000 year range. Um, but somewhere in there, we quickly had the stratification of society where the wealthy got the meat and the poor got the wheat. Now, the wealthy probably got the wheat too, but they got the animal source foods as well. Right. And as long as people were living in kind of these rural feudal estates, well, okay, chickens and other livestock products are possible, but we didn't have refrigeration. We had relatively limited um, preservation. Right. And then as, as the cities got bigger and, and people got more and more separated, they got more and more dependent on those stable commodities 
the grains as long as you could keep the mice and the rats out of them, etc. Well, one of the things we saw when the Europeans arrived in North America is their stature increased. Because they had access to wildlife, they had access to domestic whatever. And so that, that was something. Um, it came as a surprise to me recently when I heard somebody talk about how we've been feeding corn to cattle since the 1840s. And in fact, it started in your part of the world where you you had people producing corn in the Ohio Valley, but you lacked the transport to get it to the eastern markets. You could float it down the river, but you'd have to go all the way to New Orleans and all the way around. So what they do is they would, instead of feeding cattle in a stall and then have to clean out the stall, they would bundle the corn stalks into shocks and then they would graze cattle in those fields. The fertility would stay in the field. The animals would then move the corn to market because they could walk over the, the mountain trails to get to the eastern market. And then in the coming years, that shifted location, right? But so this sort of a process has been underway for a while, but then finally the development of refrigeration or at least, you know, ice cooled, you know, rail cars and, and getting, you know, meat to market, what have you, what have you. And now today we obviously here in North America have refrigeration, but worldwide we still have something like 45% of humanity consumes a less electrical power per year than the large North American refrigerator. So this is part yeah. of the challenge. We have animal source foods that are more perishable. How do we, and so one of the people I spoke with, Dr. Berg out of North Dakota State, talked about maybe what we should be doing is providing some form of jerky for food relief during famines overseas rather than soy, right? In addition to whatever there is locally available as a supplement, you know, it, it, it would be nutrient dense, lightweight, provide all the nutrition that would be necessary. Obviously you need to make it culturally appropriate, um, but you could supplement, you know, a grain meal with, you know, broth and jerky made local right so so but what other forms of shelf stable animal source food are possible for you know all these people that need that nutrition and and part of the challenge uh, years ago they started making these kind of statements and i think they're they're still along this line that by 2050 we'll need to double food production globally that will need to well there'll be an increase in demand of two-thirds for animal source protein obviously the land area to do that on is not going to increase in fact all the pressure is the other way um, just in order to meet the development goals will require a doubling of world um, electrical generating capacity something like 70 plus percent of humanity will live in urban areas. 
and the two billion more people that we're looking at having by 2100 are going to come from people 70 and 80 right not from children 15 and under like the 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 projections are there'll be the same number of children 15 years and under as there are today but there'll be two billion more people who are and and we know that seniors need a higher quality diet and so these projections that have been made i don't think have brought that into the projection so it, it's all based in this well as we get more prosperous people want more it's like well yeah maybe but you know what, what did i hear something like one study i remember dr georgia ede mentioning was that 95 percent of the world's vegetarians are economic vegetarians they're not philosophic vegetarians and and the other thing that we need to understand is that the people for example that we typically think of as being vegetarians eat animal source food they might not eat red meat or they might not eat red meat of a particular species but they do eat in some cases, fish and poultry and dairy. Um, in places where they don't eat beef, they do eat lamb or goat. And so we, we, we've, we've had this, again, like healthy diet, like these other things, we have this perception that doesn't always align with reality. And I would love to continue talking on that conversation because that's super interesting. But unfortunately, we don't have that much time left. And I really wanted to um, get your thoughts on something you said earlier about uh, the food supply. That's something that I've been hearing kind of from different sources uh, recently. Um, and I wanted you to kind of clarify um, what are you know some of the problems with the food supply in the coming years more, more recently? Um, yeah, so for one very recent presentation, I looked up what's happened to, um, we talk about fertilizer, so we'll talk about nitrogen, we'll talk about phosphate, we'll talk about potash. And nitrogen and phosphate are at record high prices in the United States. And potash is getting towards record levels. So significant inputs into food production um part of that started prior to the ukrainian conflict because of energy situation the energy being needed to create the nitrogen fertilizer so that was already in play the other factor that was already in play was china was apparently stopping exports of nutrients that the, they have been struggling with something called African swine fever, um, which has required them to liquidate a substantial portion of their swine herd, which itself is, you know, close to the size of the rest of, you know, larger than our entire swine herd. And swine is an important part of their food supply. So, in order to make sure that rice didn't have a problem, they restricted export of phosphate, which is their primary source. And then on top of that, you add the Ukraine um, conflict uh, where Belarus 
is apparently a large supplier of the world's uh, potash. Um, there are other deposits that could be commercialized, but you can't just turn those on. So from other countries, ultimately we can get those, but it's going to take a while. Interestingly enough, uh, plant source foods are a very inefficient way to transfer nutrients to humans. And so another way to put that is that, that more of what's extracted from the production area ends up being voided by the humans that you use without them making use of those nutrients. Um, classically think of phosphate, um, phosphorus, the majority like 60-70% of the phosphorus in cereal crops is in phytate and we can't digest phytate. So that's just one example. Um, so that's in play right now. Um, we also have diesel fuel at high prices and diesel's a significant input into all of our agricultural production and distribution, right? Trucking it from point to point. Um, so those are issues, you know, we've had problems with processing over the last two years. Some of that is still, you know, getting sorted out. Um, so all of those are contributing to significant increases in meat and poultry costs. So one of my concerns within ancestral, keto, carnivore, low carb, whatever you want to call it, is we need to pay attention that people have to be able to afford it. And so the advocacy has often been, well, you know, if don't bother doing this unless you get, and then you put all the label claims on the product. And it's like, no, 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 no. You know, go buy the lost leader eggs, the cheapest eggs you can buy, eat them. You'll be better off than this other stuff that, that people have been eating. And I mean, so, so there's a long way we could go on that. Um, but no, we've, we've seen the number five and the number one exporter of wheat taken off the market. And right. that's going to cause social disruptions in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. It did the last time there was an interruption in the wheat supply, and it wasn't as great as this. Um, you know, Ukraine itself was a significant exporter. Um, I was just watching something that suggested they're going to be an importer of food for some significant period of time. You know, they, maybe they got winter wheat planted last fall. They're not going to get to harvest much of it. And if they do, how are they going to ship it? It's all going to be for internal use. I doubt much spring wheat will have been planted. Uh, you know, so, so that all is going to shift um, a lot of what's been going on. And do you think this is really as disastrous as some people make it out to be? Because you know, some of the sources that I've gotten this information from are straight up like, I am going to start my own farm because this is going to get really bad. Prices are going to get really, really high. Like, do you think it's really going to be that bad in the next few years? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I have lived long enough to survive at least five ends of the world. Um, you know, the, the humanity has this habit of really getting enamored with the next, you know, end of the world is coming kind of thing. It's serious. 
Um, you know, and I, I recognize that I'm uncommonly blessed when it comes to most human beings in the world today. So at, at the end of the day, I'll be okay, you know, and I hate to put it that way. I, I'm not one of the, and this came up somebody else. They, they wanted to say, well, now that fertilizer prices are so high, organic food should be cheaper. It's like, you don't think that organic fertilizer is somehow tied in price to commercial fertilizer, right? I mean, we, we, we have this idea, like somehow we could escape what's going to happen to input costs. Right. And, 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 you know, uh, farmland everywhere is well beyond its productive value. So it's, it's, it's got some other value, not from what you could produce on it and sell, which is part of, you know, one of the things that may have to get sorted out through all this. Um, I, I think that living in rural areas is a better bet than living in urban areas for a number of reasons, not the least of which is you're closer to people producing food. Uh, you're also closer to people that know how to do a lot of things. And it's always handy to be around people that know how to do things. Uh, you know, like somebody who has a welder and knows how to use it is a pretty valuable commodity. And, and there are other things like that. So, you know, I, I've heard a lot of what's going on, but I'm convinced that we're still in the best place for whatever happens okay. globally. Um, and, and again, I've, I've listened to people explain all that and yeah, okay. It kind of makes sense. Okay. That's good to know. Um, I know we're running out of time here. Um, I don't know how much more time you have. I only have like one or two more questions. That's fine. Let's Perfect. Go. Okay. Um, so I did want to touch on protein from plants versus animals. And before we get into actually like the specific, um, the specifics of human health. I mean, both questions are kind of related to human health, but the first will be more so related to the protein that is produced um, from plants versus animals. Um, and so could you walk us through that a little bit? Um, let's start with how we talk about protein. And on the label, on the food item, or in a table of nutrient values, you'll see a value often it's expressed as protein in a good table it should say crude protein and crude protein again is estimated by determining the total nitrogen multiplying that percent nitrogen by 6.25 and that product then is called crude protein and we do that because we're going we assume that all the nitrogen that was in that feed or food sample was in was protein in protein and all that protein was 16 percent nitrogen well, we've done that for well over 100 years we have lots and lots of data it works okay uh well it worked okay for a long time mostly because it was more complicated to do anything better uh, it works okay with ruminants because ruminants can utilize non-protein nitrogen. More specifically, the microbes in their rumen can use non-protein nitrogen to make their own microbial protein, which the cow or sheep or goat then digests. So, but we don't have a rumen. Pigs don't have a rumen. We must have, we have 
amino acids that are essential in our diet. So there's no such thing as an essential amino acid in a ruminant's diet. Um, it's, it's complicated, more complicated to determine individual amino acids than it is total nitrogen. But we've been speaking too often about grams of protein, and that's crude protein. Plants are going to be higher in non-protein nitrogen than are uh, animal source foods. Uh, again, I mentioned that plant source foods vary quite a bit in their nutritional quality, so you've got that going. Um, and then we've got the issue of the ratios of these amino acids. So our ability to utilize protein is determined by the essential amino acid that's present in the least amount relative to its requirement. It's, it's, it's again, like the short stave in the barrel. And, and so practically in Moen's paper last year, he started with a hundred and some odd low and middle income countries and territories, looked at protein supply, only a few at the very low end were below a low level, you know, some requirement. Um, and, but when he got done looking at how much utilizable lice protein based on lysine content, virtually none of them were sufficient. So, you know, the more sophisticated we get in our metrics, the clearer it is that we have a protein quality supply crisis. Um, and that was based on that low requirement, which is actually a minimum instead of a target. Right, RDA at a 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight is what we need to avoid over, you know, lack. And so it probably maybe needs to be closer to double that. Um, so that's, and, and I already mentioned that when we process plant source foods, we can actually reduce the content of amino acids or the digestibility of amino acids that right. are present. And lysine is the classic, you know, anytime you brown something, you're binding lysine to carbohydrate and we can't get that loose to use it. So we're making that unavailable. So that's crust, that's crispy breakfast cereals, crackers, whatever. Mm -hmm. That's what's happening there to the low level of lysine that was present in the raw ingredients going in. Is, is um, that, sorry, is that taken into account in the nutrition labels? No, <laughs> no, because they're based on crude protein. Okay. Okay. And there has been the recommendation that it needs to be labeled on an individual essential amino acid basis. And it's like, oh my God, we're going to have a label. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I get the rationalization, but the implementation is, um, but that, you know, that recommendation was made like nine years ago by an yeah. international body. So um, yeah. So people are talking about, I'm getting so many grams of protein from my diet, the more plant source food you have in that diet, the more variable that number is, and you don't know that variation. 
Okay, the more plant source food you, you're getting from your diet, the greater the percentage of that is in protein to begin with. And then we've got some other considerations. So, so those are my concerns with people who are attempting to achieve on a plant only diet. And, and then there's the question of we don't only consume protein, we consume other nutrients, macro and micro. Right. And, and so if I'm trying to get, you know, my essential amino acids from cereals, I'm going to be consuming a lot of starch. Yeah. Um, chances are those are going to be coming from processed foods. So what else am I consuming? Right. right? We, we don't tend to just eat raw wheat berries, hmm. right? We, it, it, and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So th those are my concerns, um, around that space. Right. Yeah, no, I, I had um, Dr. Jessica Turton on and Dr. Michelle Hearn, two dietitians that are more animal based on the show, and they talked about the bioavailability of uh, plants and uh, animal foods. And in plants, it's very, very clear that they have a lower bioavailability, which means what you see on that label is not only what you mentioned in terms of the amino acid content and the browning, right? Um, but it's also that we can't even absorb like all of that just because of our, you know, our, di our digestion, the nature of our digestive tract. Um, but are you all, you're also saying that, I guess, by definition, animal agriculture will produce higher quality nutrition, more protein than plant agriculture? Well, you know, how do we want to measure it? You can, the reason we grow crops is because we get high <clears throat> yield. But, you know, as I said recently is, is, you know, kilocalories per acre, the best metric for our food supply because I can grow sugar cane or sugar beets, produce a lot of calories, right? Is, is I not in the face of a population that's 90% metabolically ill, that doesn't make sense. Yes. Um, so the, the highest quality food sources are coming from animal source foods, the most consistent in terms of their nutritional content and availability are coming from animal source foods. And so from a colleague, I got three priorities. One, we, we have to be concerned about public health and public health without animal source foods is impossible. Mm -hmm. Number two, we should be concerned about sustainable food systems. Sustainable food systems are not possible without animal agriculture producing animal source foods. And number three, these are part of everyone's culture and traditions right it looks different depending on where we come from but this is our individual or group identity and history and traditions and culture these foods long predating recorded history these are things that help form us as social organisms and so breaking that in the name of poorly founded claims about environmental benefits or largely unfounded claims about health benefits seems to me to not be a positive direction to go in. Yeah. And I would say that, I think I heard this on Dr. Paul Saladino's podcast, but he said, um, there aren't very many cave drawings of wheat and quinoa and 
chickpeas, but there are a lot of them about cows and buffalo and, um, you know, animal animals because of the importance that they played in our health and our evolution. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's a whole nother subject that we could go down on, but right. clearly, um, I am impressed by the fact that grasses go back almost as far as the dinosaur that, um, ruminants go back 40 some million years that primates are what only three and modern humans are somewhere less than one it's 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 like there was this niche that developed and this clever species came along and exploited a niche that hadn't existed before uh, and wasn't being exploited and then learned how they could manipulate wild herds and then learned how to domesticate and then learn that by having some people specializing in some things, others could specialize in other things. And we could still cooperate and we could, you know, develop uh, more in areas than we could have had we all had to be engaged in food production, for example. And, and here we are today. And one of the great promises that I hold on to is the idea of, you know, nine billion properly nourished human brains communicating with each other and i can't imagine that we would not be able to solve whatever problems we face but right now we have to focus on the nourishing those brains part dr beller said where can people find out more about you I'm all over social media, Twitter and Instagram at grass-based, one word, um, grass-based health on uh, Facebook. Um, I have under my own name, a YouTube channel. Uh, there's not that many Ballersteads around. If you find another one, please let me know. He might be kin. Perfect. Um, I'll link to all those in the show notes. Thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Likewise, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it far and wide with as many friends and family as possible. And please check out my book, Return to Human, How Modern Medicine, the Media, and the Mundane Have Destroyed Our Health and How to Move Back Towards Optimal Health. You can find it on Amazon. Just click the little filter, books. And please remember to rate this podcast on iTunes. That would help us get this message out to way more people. Thank you for listening.